Chapter forty seven of the Scalp Hunters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Scalp Hunters by Thomas Maine Reed. Chapter forty seven A Queer Encounter in a Cave. The place into which I had crawled was of irregular outlines. Rocks jutted along the sides, and between these, small lateral shafts had been dug where the miners had followed the ramifications of the Kisa. The cave was not a deep one. The vein had not proved profitable, and had been abandoned for some other. I kept up it till I was fairly in the dark, and then groping against one side I found a recess, in which I ensconced myself. By peeping around the rock I could see out of the cave and some distance over the bottom of the barranca, where the bushes grew thin and straggling. I had hardly seated myself when my attention was called to a scene that was passing outside. Two men on their hands and knees were crawling through the cactus plants in front of the cave. Beyond them half a dozen savages on horseback were beating the thicket, but had not yet seen the men. These I recognized easily. They were Goad and the doctor. The latter was nearer me, and as he scrambled on over the shingle something started out of the rocks within reach of his hand. I noticed that it was a small animal of the armadillo kind. I saw him stretch forward, clutch it, and with a pleased look deposit it in a bag that was by his side. All this time the Indians were whooping and yelling behind him, and not fifty yards distant. Doubtless the animal was of some new species, but the zealous naturalist never gave it to the world. He had scarcely drawn forth his hand again when a cry from the savages announced that he and Goad were discovered and the next moment both lay upon the ground pierced with lances, and to all appearance dead. Their pursuers now dismounted with the intention of scalping them. Poor Richter! His cap was pulled off, the bleeding trophy followed, and he lay with the red skull towards the cave, a hideous spectacle. Another Indian had alighted, and stood over the Canadian with his long knife in his hand. Although pitying my poor follower, and altogether in no humour for mirth, Knowing what I did, I could not help watching the proceedings with some curiosity. The savage stood for a moment, admiring the beautiful curls that embellished the head of his victim. He was no doubt thinking what handsome fringes they would make for his leggings. He appeared to be in ecstasies of delight, and from the flourishes which he made with his knife I could see that it was his intention to skin the whole head. After cutting several capers around it, he stooped and grasped a fistful of curls but before he had touched the scalp with his blade the hair lifted off, displaying the white and marble-like skull. With a cry of terror the savage dropped the wig, and running backward fell over the body of the doctor. The cry attracted his comrades, and several of them, dismounting, approached the strange object with looks of astonishment. One, more courageous than the rest, picked up the wig, which they all proceeded to examine with curious minuteness. Then, one after another, went up to the shining skull and passed his fingers over its smooth surface, all the while uttering exclamations of surprise. They tried on the wig, took it off, and put it on again, turning it various ways. At length he who claimed it as his property pulled off his plumed headdress, and adjusting the wig upon his own head, front backward, stalked proudly around, with the long curls dangling over his face. It was altogether a curious scene, and under other circumstances might have amused me. 
There was something irresistibly comic in the puzzled looks of the actors, but I had been too deeply affected by the tragedy to laugh at the farce. There was too much of horror around me. Seguin, perhaps dead, she gone forever, the slave of the brutal savage. My own peril, too, at the moment. For I knew not how soon I would be discovered and dragged forth. This affected me least of all. My life was now of little value to me, and so I regarded it. But there is an instinct, so-called, of self-preservation, even when the will ceases to act. Hopes soon began to shape themselves in my mind, and along with these the wish to live. Thoughts came. I might organize a powerful band. I might yet rescue her. Yes, even though years might intervene, I would accomplish this. She would still be true. She would never forget. Poor Seguin! What a life of hope withered in an hour! he himself sealing the sacrifice with his blood. But I would not despair, even with his fate for a warning. I would take up the drama where he had ended. The curtain would rise upon new scenes, and I would not abandon the stage until I had accomplished a more joyous finale, or failing this, had reached the denouement of death or vengeance. Poor Seguin! No wonder he had been a scalp-hunter! I could now understand how holy was his hate for the ruthless red man. I, too, had imbibed the passion. With such reflections passing hastily, for the scene I have described, and the sequent thoughts did not occupy much time, I turned my eyes inwards, to examine whether I was sufficiently concealed in my niche. They might take it into their heads to search the shaft. As I endeavoured to penetrate the gloom that extended inwards, my gaze became riveted on an object that caused me to shrink back with a cold shudder. Notwithstanding the scenes I had just passed through, this was the cause of still another agony. In the thick of the darkness I could distinguish two small spots, round and shining. They did not scintillate, but rather glistened with a steady greenish luster. I knew that they were eyes. I was in the cave with a panther, or with a still more terrible companion, the grizzly bear. My first impulse was to press back into the recess where I had hidden myself. This I did, until my back leaned against the rocks. I had no thoughts of attempting to escape out. That would have been from the frying-pan into the fire, for the Indians were still in front of the cave. Moreover, any attempt to retreat would only draw on the animal, perhaps at that moment straining to spring. I cowered closely, groping along my belt for the handle of my knife. I clasped this at length, and drawing it forth, waited in a crouching attitude. During all this time my eyes had remained fixed on the lustrous orbs before me. I saw that they were fixed upon mine, and watched me without as much as winking. Mine seemed to be possessed of abstract volition. I could not take them off. They were held by some terrible fascination, and I felt, or fancied, that the moment this should be broken the animal would spring upon me. I had heard of fierce brutes being conquered by the glance of the human eye, and I endeavoured to look back at my vis-à-vis -vis with interest. We sat for some time, neither of us moving an inch. I could see nothing of the animal's body, nothing but the green gleaming circles that seemed set in a ground of ebony. As they had remained motionless so long, I conjectured that the owner of them was still lying in his lair, and would not make his attack until something disturbed him perhaps until the Indians had gone away. The thought now occurred to me that I might better arm myself. I knew that a knife would be of little avail against a grizzly bear. My pistol was still in my belt, but it was empty. Would the animal permit me to load it? 
I resolved to make the attempt. Still leaving my eyes to fulfill their office, I felt for my flask and pistol, and finding both ready, I commenced loading. I proceeded with silence and caution, for I knew that these animals could see in the dark, and that in this respect my vis-a-vis -vis had the advantage of me. I felt the powder in with my finger, and pushing the ball on top of it, rolled the cylinder to the right notch, and cocked. As the spring clicked, I saw the eyes start. It will be on me now. Quick as the thought, I placed my finger to the trigger, but before I could level, a voice with a well-known accent restrained me. "'Hold on there!' cried the voice. "'Why didn't ye say your hide were white? I thought twas some sneakin' injun. Who are ye, anyhow? Tain't Bill Garry? No, Billy, tain't you, old feller.' "'No,' said I, recovering from my surprise. "'It's not Bill.' "'I might a guessed that. Bill would a knowed me sooner. He would a knowed the glint of this nigger's eyes as I would his'n. Ah, poor Billy! I's afeard that trapper's rubbed out, and there ain't many more o' his sort in the mountains. No, there ain't.' "'Rot it,' continued the voice, with a fierce emphasis. "'This comes a layin' one's rifle ahind him. If I'd a had targets wi' me, I wouldn't have been hidin' here like a scared possum. But she are gone.' that little gun are gone, and the mar too, and here I am, without either beast or weepin. Cuss the luck! And the last words were uttered with an angry hiss that echoed through every part of the cave. "'You're the young feller, the captain's friend, ain't ye?' inquired the speaker with a sudden change of tone. "'Yes,' I replied. "'I didn't see you were comin' in, or I'm out a spoke sooner. I got a smart lick across the arm.' and I were just a-tying it up as ye tumbled in there. Who did ye think this child were? I did not think you were any one. I took you for a grizzly bear. Ha! <laughs> I thought so, when I heard the click of your pistol. <laughs> if ever I sets my peepers on Bill Garry again, I'll make that nigger laugh till his guts ache. Old Rube took for a grizzly. If that ain't— Ha! <laughs> Ho! and the old trapper chuckled at the conceit, as if he had just been witnessing some scene of amusement, and there was not an enemy within a hundred miles of him. "'Did you see anything of Seguin?' I asked, wishing to learn whether there was any probability that my friend still lived. "'Did I? I did. And a sight that were. Did he ever see a catamount riz?' "'I believe I have,' said I. "'Well, that were him. He were in the shanty when it felled. So were I myself, but I went there long arter. I creeped out summers about the door, and just then I seed the cap hand to hand with an injun in a stand-up tussle. But it didn't last long. The cap gin him a sockdologer summers about the ribs, and the nigger went under. He did. But what of Seguin? Did you see him afterwards? Did I see him arterwards? No, I didn't. I fear he is killed. That ain't likely, young feller. He knows these diggin's better'n any o' us, and he oughter know poor to Casher, I reckon. He's did that, I'll be bound. Aye, if he would, said I, thinking that Seguin might have followed the captives and thrown away his life recklessly. Don't be scared about him, young feller. The cap ain't a-going to put his fingers into a bee's nest where there's no honey. He ain't. But where could he have gone when you did not see him afterwards? Where could he a gone? Fifty ways he could a gone through the brush. I didn't think a lookin' arter him. 
he left the engine where he had throwed him, without raising the har, so I stooped down to get it, and when I riz again he went there nohow. But that engine were Lord, that engine are some punkins, ye are. What Indian do you mean? Him as jined us on the Del Norte. The Coco. El Sol, what of him? Is he killed? Well, he ain't, I reckon. Nor can't a be. That's this child's opinion of it. He kim from under the ranch arter it tumbled, and his fine dress looked as spick as if it had been just tuck out of a bandy-box. There were two at him, and lor how he fit them. I tackled on one of them, a hint, and gin him a settler in the hump ribs, but the way he finished the other were a caution to crock it. Twere the puttiest lick I ever seed in these here mountains, and I've seed a good few, I reckon. How was it? He know the injun that are the cocoa fit wi' a hatchet? Yes. Well, then, that sir's a disperate weepin for them as knows how to use it. And he dis. That injun dis. T'other had a hatchet, too, but he didn't keep it long. T'were clinked out of his hands in a minute, and then the cocoa got a down blow at him. Wah! It were a down blow, and it weren't nothin' else. It split the nigger's head clear down to the thrapple. T'was separated into two halves, as if it had been clove with a broad-axe. If he had a seed the varmint when he kim to the ground, he'd a thought he were double-headed. And just then I spied the engines a-comin' down both sides of the bluff, and havin' neither beast nor weepin, except in a knife, this child took a notion won't safe to be there any longer. And cashed, he did. End of chapter 47